church. And uh, welcome back. Welcome back. Good to see you all. Good to have our guests with us here today. We'd like to say welcome home, and we welcome those who are joining us live stream today as well. You know what a knockoff product is. You've got your brand name, and the brand names are usually kind of expensive, and we like our brands, but there are knockoffs of people who can't necessarily afford the brand name. And often, the name of the knockoff product is very similar to the brand. Uh, so let's look at uh, two or three slides this morning uh, as examples. I want you to see this is audience participation. If you can guess the authentic brand that this is a knockoff of. Okay, let's put the first one up there. Prongles chips. What's that a knockoff of? Pringles. Okay, let's try another one. Cat caught candy. Kit Kats. Kit Kats. Let's go to the next one. Uh, Game Child. Game Boy. That one's a little challenging. Game Boy. I, mean, I think we got one more here. Dito's chips. Or Doritos chips. Okay, so, but uh, what I want to talk about today is a knockoff in a spiritual sense. And it goes along with the theme of our current sermon series, which we were in last month and we're continuing into this month called Killing Kryptonite. Now, as you know, kryptonite is Superman's weakness. And spiritually speaking, for Christians, we have a kryptonite as well, and that is sin. But we've been zeroing in more specifically on the sin of idolatry. And we've got a working definition of idolatry here. It's actually in your bulletin today, and we'll put it up here on the slide. Idolatry is when someone puts aside what God clearly reveals in order to satisfy cravings or desires contrary to his ways. Y'all have trouble with slides back there? There it is. All right, hang with me, guys. Come on, Justin, hang with me back there. Nah, they're great. They're great. They do great. All right, so here it is. Let me say it again. When someone puts aside what God clearly reveals in order to satisfy cravings or desires contrary to his ways. So you got the revelation of God. This is God's will. Thus saith the Lord. But we've got maybe some desire, maybe some coveting, some craving, and we decide to fulfill it in some way contrary to God's will. You say, well, I never thought of idolatry in that way. Hey, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So coveting this unholy desire, maybe a holy desire for something, but satisfying that in an ungodly way. So that's what we've been talking about. And today as we continue in that vein, we're going to look again at the Israelites as they go into the deepest, most deceptive type of idolatry. So you may know Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. God delivered them using Moses. And Moses takes them out to Mount Sinai. So they come out of Egypt, they're going to Mount Sinai to meet God. That's where Moses met God, in the burning bush. And Moses, before taking them to the promised land, wants to introduce them to the promiser, the one who makes the promise. So he's taking them. In fact, God gave a message to Moses and said, Say to the nation of Israel, I delivered you on eagles' wings to bring you to myself. And this was God's desire for Israel, just to bring them to himself. He wants to have a relationship with these people. He wants to be a father and have them be his children. He desires that fellowship. Same for us. What God wants is us to be in his family. He wants to bring us to himself. He wants to have that fellowship. So Moses leads them to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on top of the mountain. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the Ten Commandments, receiving the law of God. But meanwhile, 
back in the camp while Moses is up on the mountain. Exodus chapter 32 is where we'll be doing a lot of scripture work. Verse 1. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So already, it doesn't take long uh, that these Israelites are turning away and they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them gods. Now, the word that is translated here when they say, make us some gods. You see, I've italicized gods. In the Hebrew, now just a sidebar here, 99.9% of the time, we don't need to know Hebrew, we don't need to know Greek to understand the Bible. English works just fine. God can reveal his will to us, but every once in a while, preacher types like to get into the original language to make a finer point of some kind. So in the Hebrew, this word translated gods is Elohim. It's one of the names for God, Elohim. It is used over 2,600 times in the Old Testament. And far and away, it is used when it's translated to indicate the one true God of the Bible. In fact, over 2,250 times it's used of the one true God. But there are over 250 times where Elohim is used to, to in, uh, when it's interpreted, it means an idol. It means a false god. And this is one of those times in the verse that we just read when it says, make us some God. So interpreters of our Bibles understand when you come to Elohim, you've got to look at the context to determine what's being said there. So the Israelites say to Aaron, make us some gods. And, and he kind of yields to the peer pressure. And he says, all right, give me your, give me, everybody give me your gold earrings. So I guess earrings were all that back then and they all had gold earrings and they took them off and they gave them to Aaron you're thinking these are former slaves what are they all doing with gold earrings well do you recall that when the Israelites left Egypt the Bible says that God made the Egyptians predisposed to give the Israelites anything they asked for as they're on the way out they could ask for anything and the Egyptians gave it to them and God did that the Bible says that Israel plundered the Egyptians as they were leaving. So they would ask for earrings, they would ask for gold and jewelry, and the, and the Egyptians gave it to them. So they all had these earrings. They give them to Aaron. Aaron melts them down and fashions this infamous calf. Now, after he does that, the people uh, responded. We're in Exodus 32, 4. They said, this is your God, O Israel, who, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And again, this Elohim again. This is your God. They're not saying this is Dagon or this is Baal or this is Ra or one of the gods of Egypt. They're saying this is the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And that becomes even more clear in the next verse, verse 5. When Aaron saw how excited the people were, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. So, now here's the, dis the distinction I wanted to make. This word Lord is not Elohim. That is the word Yahweh. Now you may or may not know, Yahweh in the Bible is like the personal name for God. That is the name that God revealed to Moses. I am Yahweh. It was so sacred, most of the time the, Israel, the Israelites wouldn't even pronounce it for fear of taking the Lord's name in vain, and they would even misspell it in their scriptures so as not to be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. 
Whereas Elohim is used 250 times to indicate a false deity or an idol, Yahweh is never used anywhere except to indicate the one true God of the Bible with one exception. And that exception is this verse right here where Aaron announced, here's your God, and tomorrow we're going to have a festival to the Lord, meaning this calf image. Incredibly. What Aaron is saying and what the Israelites are saying was they're not denying that there's a God and that it's, it's the God who delivered them and the God who healed them and the God who provided for them and the God who parted the Red Sea. They're not denying any of that. They're just saying that God, God most powerful, Elohim, Yahweh, is this image that they have created. So they have traded the true image of God for a false image that's manageable. Now, are you aware that one of the commandments that God gave was, do not make any graven image of me. Don't try to make an image of me. Don't carve a statue. Don't make anything out of gold. Don't paint a picture. You can't make an image of God. God is spirit. He's invisible. So don't try to capture my image. God is not manageable by us, is he? But here, this is the trade the Israelites are making. They don't like that. They want a God that they can manage and they can control. So they, they trade God's true nature and image for this calf that they can manage and they can control. And I remember what idolatry is, you know, satisfying this craving in some ungodly way. They're descending to a level where their Yahweh is pleased with whatever they want to do. Because we see this in verse 6 now, 32.6. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings to this calf. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. So there Yahweh, now, now the true Yahweh, he's not, he's not okay with gluttony, he's not okay with pagan revelry, but their Yahweh is fine with it. And a lot of scholars believe this, this pagan revelry connotes also sexual immorality can't prove that don't want to make too much of it but it lines up with what paul said about idolatry in romans 121 that people who deny the one true god they began to think about up foolish ideas of what god was like and so when moses finally comes down the mountain and he sees what's happened there's a reckoning that has to take place there's an accounting First for Aaron, his brother, then for the leaders of Israel, and then for the people themselves. And uh, verse 25, Exodus 32, 25, Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and he shouted, all of you who are on the Lord's side, come over here. And it was a very dark and, and sad time for the nation of Israel. And note, and we note, we don't choose to be on the Lord's side just by making a, a, a one-time profession and singing songs to God. We choose to be on the Lord's side through obedience, through living according to His will, His word, and His way. That's how we choose to come on over to God's side. So I'm calling that a knockoff Yahweh. Now the question for us this morning, in our society, in our culture, and even in some parts of our religious culture, has a knockoff Christ being created is there a knockoff jesus in other words not denying that there is a jesus there is a christ 
but saying, well, I love that Christ, and I, I, he is my Lord, and yet where people be, behave in ways that are disobedient to that Christ, behave in ways that, that, that the true Christ would not approve of, but that the knockoff Christ maybe would. Let me read you a, a quote from John Bevere. John Bevere writes, Have we found certain instructions in the New Testament that appeal to us? We know we're saved by grace through faith. We cannot earn this grace because it is God's gift. We stress living for one another, enjoying life, serving one another, singing songs of praise and worship, being relevant, executing good leadership, creating healthy community. These are all good practices and supported by the New Testament. However, are we neglecting the importance of humility, of holiness, sexual purity, abstinence from other sins? Have we warned those we love to flee from same-sex unions? fornication, drunkenness, crude jokes, empty foolish talking, unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, slander, gossip, bad attitude, and many other important commandments and instructions and warnings found in the New Testament. Can we solely focus on the aspects of Jesus' words that don't collide with our society's established standards and perversions? Can we create a Jesus that does not confront the ungodly ways of our culture? Can we avoid addressing what he hates and only proclaim his words that society deems admirable? Sometimes Christians suggest, well, let's be known for what we're for, not for what we're against. Why? Why not both? Isn't God known for what he's for? Isn't Christ known for what he's for and against? Was it Paul known for what he was for and against in the early church? Can we widen the road and gate that leads to life? Have we created a knockoff Jesus, different from the one revealed by the entire council of Scripture? And are we purposefully ignoring the challenging issues of the New Testament? Apostle Paul, toward the end of his ministry, when he was meeting with the, the eldership of a, the church of Ephesus, makes an important statement that we can't ignore. It's kind of a summary of his ministry. In Acts chapter 20, verse 26, he writes, I declare today that I've been faithful in, that I've been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. So now enough time has gone by. We've gone through several generations in our society, in our culture, and sometimes in the religious world of emphasizing only the positive commands and teachings of Scripture, and we're starting to reap a harvest of that. A knockoff Christ. Knockoff Christ, for instance, just a couple of examples, affirms same-sex marriage. Uh, Jimmy Carter, former president Jimmy Carter, was interviewed last year, just a few months ago, by the Huffington Post, and he made this statement, quote, I think Jesus would encourage any love affair if it was honest and sincere and was not damaging to anyone else, and I don't see that gay marriage damages anyone else, end quote, okay? And I'm just using him because it typifies a whole section of religious community that affirms that. Knock off Jesus approves cohabitation. That's living together uh, before marriage. 30, now, this is Barna, Barna statistics. 37% of people who are living together, cohabiting, are professed Christians. Recent polls indicate 
half the youth in our church youth groups, 49%, approve of cohabitation. A few years ago, there was a movie called Dogma, um, and I don't recommend it. I haven't seen it, but I've read the reviews. And in this movie, Dogma, well, one of the main characters, the priest, is unhappy with how the, the Catholic Church is not as popular as it used to be, so he's, he's working to, to change that. And he feels like, uh, you know, it's too, like the crucifix, that's too depressing an image. So he retires the crucifix, and he creates an image called Buddy Christ. And Buddy Christ is, you know, he's, he's winking and he's pointing. He's got the thumbs up. He's, hey, Buddy Christ, Buddy Christ. And uh, so it's the whole idea that this is much more palatable and much more acceptable. Remember that old song, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right with everybody and much easier to love, he felt like. But what's the biblical, what's the biblical definition of love and how we love Christ? How we love God. John writes in 1 John 5, 3, loving God means keeping His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. So all of this is leading up to one point that I want to make, really. And it's, it's a difference between a knockoff Christ and the authentic Christ. And there's probably many differences. But the one I want to focus on this morning is the issue of repentance. Knockoff Christ is not calling for repentance. And the authentic Christ always calls for repentance. Were we ever told, when we were going through the process of being saved or becoming a Christian, were we told that not only do we need to turn to God, but we also need to turn away from sin? Again, Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I've had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, I'm going to go pretty rapid fire through a number of scriptures here just to make an impression. And that is, there's no turning to God without repenting from sin. If there was, that would be the message in the Bible, just turn to God. But it's always repent from sin and turn to God. First words out of John the Baptist's mouth in his public ministry, Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First words out of Jesus' public mouth in his public ministry, Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew eleven twenty, Jesus said, he began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and returned and turned rather to God. Matthew chapter 6 verse 12 as the disciples are sent on their first preaching tour so the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. The rich man who was burning in hell Luke chapter 16, verse 30, the rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. All of that's before the death and resurrection of Jesus. After the resurrection, did the message change? No. Luke 24, 47, after his resurrection, Jesus says to the disciples, There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. First gospel sermon is on the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching. The, uh, the Jews say, What must we do to be saved? And he responds in Acts 2.38, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins. This was Paul's message to the Gentiles. Acts 26, 19, I preached also to the Gentiles that all must repent of their sins and turn to God. This is God's perspective in Acts 17, 30. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. The Hebrew writer lists this as part of the fundamental basics of the faith in Hebrews 6, 1. Let us stop going over basic teachings about Christ again and again. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. That is not all of the references in the scriptures of repenting and turning, but it's enough. It just gets to be redundant after a while. But it's enough to demonstrate this is the consistent teaching of Jesus, of the apostles, of God, of the Holy Spirit, of the New Testament, that there is no turning to God apart from repentance from sin. In other words, grace is wonderful, and the grace covers our sins, but we cannot use grace as a license to sin. We are on a very deceptive area of idolatry. I'm not saying anyone here is, but this happens to us sometimes. A very deceptive area of idolatry when we continue in what we know is sinful practice and then claim that Christ is all right with that. The irony of it is, <clears throat> is that what God is calling us to repent from never satisfies us anyway. All that sinful activity, I know there's pleasure in sin for a season, but it's all masking pain. Uh, and what we're really seeking, what we really, where the satisfaction and contentment really is, which is in God. God says in Isaiah 55 too, why spend money on what's not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen closely to me and you'll eat what's good and your soul will enjoy the rich food that satisfies. The gospel is always good news. It's good news for everybody. It's good news for those who are same-sex attracted. It's good news. It's good news for a person who's addicted to alcohol or nar narcotics. It's good news for anybody who's in an, an estranged marriage or has an estranged family relationship. It's good news for somebody who's struggling with anger or with gossip or with slander or with whatever it is that God is calling us to turn away from and turn toward him because none of that ever satisfies. And God is the one who satisfies. Gospel is always good news. Let me close here with Brennan Manning's parable of the dog's dilemma. A dog of average intelligence lies in the dirt gnawing a bone. The bone, once a vital part of some cow's structural integrity, is now depleted of marrow and moisture and worthless for anything beyond stimulating the canine's gums and exercising his jaws. You approach the dog, hands behind your back, and he eyes you suspiciously. You speak kindly, and he wags his tail slowly and smiles a doggy smile and places a paw on top of the bone, sniffing the air uncertainly. After a moment, he returns to the bone with a lick. He's about to resume gnawing when you bring your hands out from behind your back, revealing a half a pound of ground round fresh beef. This maneuver captures the dog's attention, and he wags his tail while covering the bone again with his paw. You smile and straighten your arm a bit, the one with the meat piled on the end of it. 
The dog smiles back and licks his lips. You take a half attentive step forward, extending the meat as if to offer it to the dog, and he, after a moment of frozen indecision, stands to his feet, picks up the bone, never taking his eyes off of you. You take another half step forward, and you would think, because he's your dog, you would think he's your dog who sneaks into your bed after you fall asleep, who licks fried chicken grease right off your fingers and drinks out of your open toilet. You would think that the beast would see your approach as nothing if not promising. But incredibly, he backs away. His eyes are mapping out an escape route, lest he become cornered and you do something terrible. And this is not your intention at all. You seek only his good and offer half a pound of lean ground chuck as proof. And so what if there's the tiniest bit of doggy medicine mixed in with the beef? That's for his good too. And you expect he, he, if he knows anything, he would know this. And to be fair, he suspects it in a vague and dreamy way. He sees that you have meat, and boy, does that meat look good. And his nostrils flare, and you wave the tasty treat in front of him. And he doesn't really know why he's backing up with that nasty bone when you're right there with a huge chunk of fresh beef, and all he has to do is let go of the bone. Just drop the bone, and you'll almost certainly give him the meat. And golly, does that meat look good. And boy... Is this bone ever dry? And he would. He would take the meat in a second because he trusts you and he believes in you and you're holding the meat right in front of him, almost touching his nose. But you got to understand, the beef is just a promise and he knows it may not be much, but he's got the bone. That's the dog's dilemma. You see his problem. We have to trust God in order to release this old and embrace the new. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I, I, you're not necessarily speaking to everyone here this morning, but certainly somebody is stuck in some practice that he or she knows is not pleasing to you. And so, once again, as we have to do so often in our walk with you, Lord, we hear your call to repent, to let go of whatever it is that we think we have to have and cannot live without, and to recognize, as you have said so truthfully, we don't need that. All we need is you. And you are the one that satisfies, Lord. We hear your call to repent, and we repent today. In Jesus' name.